Hello, welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. Good afternoon, friends. It's great to see you in week nine. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors on campus. Uh, and we have a great passage before us. And so let's pray and ask for God's help to rightly understand it, uh, that we can respond well to Him. Let's pray. Our great God, thank you for your word to us. Thank you that you speak, that you make yourself known, and that you teach us all that we need. Father, we ask that we would hear your voice and so respond well to you. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, back in 1964, I'm sure you remember the year well. It was a good year, apparently. Uh, it was the year that Otis Redding released his debut album. Now, has anyone heard of Otis Redding? Yeah, I didn't think there would be many takers. He had a fairly short musical career. Uh, it was cut short by death when he was flying to a concert and his plane crashed. Uh, but during his short time, he released some great songs, which you should go and look into. Uh, he was known as the King of Soul. He was famous in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, but one of the songs on his first album was a song called Security. And in his song, he said, I want security. Yeah. Uh, without it, I had a great loss. <laughs> security. Yeah. And I want it at any cost. Now, it's a song you've probably never heard of, but it's an idea that's probably familiar to you. The desire to have security is perhaps more timeless even than his great lyrics. We crave it. We'd be willing to give almost anything for it. And without it, life can feel dangerous and fragile. Now, a year later, 1965, there was another band. You might have heard of them. They're called the Rolling Stones. Uh, they released their fourth album. And on their US release, it was deemed too spicy for the UK. Uh, but on their US release, they re had this single, Satisfaction, or I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Because they sang of their, I guess, <coughs> dissatisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction. Repetition, in case you missed it. Because I try and I try and I try and I try. I can't get no. I can't get no. And as much as it had a really catchy guitar riff, I wonder whether the lyrics also resonated. As the rock stars on the stage and the common people singing along all shared this common experience of not experiencing satisfaction, unable to attain it. And all the voices just seem to make it harder. So when he's driving his car and a man came on the radio, he's telling me more and more and he's just left not feeling satisfied. Or he's watching TV and a man comes on and tells me more and more and he's left not feeling satisfied. Or if Mick Jagger was to write today, I'm sure he's, he's scrolling through people's lives He's just left feeling unsatisfied. You see, almost 60 years have passed and these songs, some of them are remembered, some are forgotten. But they continue to express what's a remarkably common and unfulfilled human desire. The desire for security and satisfaction. Now, I'm not sure how you've reflected on the impact these have on your lives. Is it the desire for security that pushes you to study, to get the good marks, in order to get the job? Is it the desire for security that means that you keep on looking for internships or part-time work or pick up more shifts in order to fill out your resume or maybe fill up your bank account? It will be the desire for security in the future that causes you to seek to impress your boss, put in some long hours, aim for the pay rise or the promotion. Perhaps if you get married to push for having a double income for as long as possible 
maybe delaying having kids to have a chance to well, save up for a house deposit. Because surely then you'll have security. But then you probably need to keep on working to put the kids through a private school so that they can have the best education possible and the chance to get the best marks. And you see how the cycle goes on. Does the quest for security just go on and on and on and drive the decisions you make in life? Because without it, you fear great loss and you will pursue security at almost any cost. Alongside the quest for security in and of itself, that can feel a little dull, so we look for satisfaction. And satisfaction, we feel, will be found through achievements and pleasure that helps us feel like our lives and what we've done is meaningful and worthwhile and that we in ourselves are meaningful. But for every step you go up, there's another step in front of you. For every achievement or success, where you expect to find that satisfaction, it's only a fleeting, brief moment. It's a bit like the cruel sport of high jump. Every time you clear the height and you look back, feeling satisfied, they just raise it up a little bit higher. You're not good enough until you've jumped to the next level. And life can feel like that. No matter how wonderful an experience you've just had, before you've posted it to social media, you see that someone else has had a better experience, a different experience, something that looks more glamorous or exciting or impressive or adventurous. And so you just can't get satisfaction, even if you try and try and try. Maybe security and satisfaction continue to allure us but escape us because we keep seeking them in our wrong places. In ourselves, in the world, in what we can do or what we've done. But in words that go back a long way, a couple of thousand years plus, to Isaiah 54 and 55, God offers us a different path to security and satisfaction. And what He offers is far greater and more glorious than even the best the world can dream up. Now, if you've been with us this term, we've had a, quite a journey through the prophet Isaiah. Uh, many weeks in the first half of the book, it felt like we we're walking through a deep, dark valley. Uh, things seemed pretty dire. There were glimmers of light and hope in God's promise and God's character and what God said would come about. But it felt like there were towering walls of judgment and condemnation for Israel and for the nations. But in the second half of the book, really from chapter 40 onwards, we've seen that God, even though Israel is still in the valley, God keeps on raising their minds and their eyes to see the hope and the goodness of what He's going to bring about. And in chapter 54 and 55, it's like God's brought us right to the peak of that. We're looking out over the vast, the vast panorama of what God's salvation holds and promises for God's people. It's a beautiful picture that we should delight in. A picture that offers deep satisfaction and lasting security. So let's take a look. We're at point two, rejoice in God's salvation. As chapter 54 begins, uh, I'm not sure if you noticed, there's this call to rejoice. And to rejoice because it's time to start renovating tents. And I couldn't find a picture of renovating a tent, but just multiplying tents. And why do we need to renovate the tent or multiply the tents? Because God's promising incredible growth. He's going to bring a multitude of people in, but they come from a place where you wouldn't expect. Chapter 54 and verse 1. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, 
and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. You see, God promises a multitude of children to a barren woman. Slightly unexpected. What's God talking about? Why a barren woman? Well, God seems to be going back to a promise from long ago, a promise He made to Abram and his barren wife Sarah that dates right back to Genesis 11 and 12. So Genesis 11 and verse 29, we pick up the story. We meet Abram and Sarai. They had slightly different names back then. But Abram and his brother Nahor, they took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. And the Bible is always a source of grief and sadness. But God made an incredible promise to this couple. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you, you 75-year-old Abram and your barren wife Sarah, I'll make you a great nation. And I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I'll curse. And in you and this great nation, I will bless all the families of the earth. God made an incredible promise. And that seems to be what he is alluding to here in chapter 54, because he's keeping that promise. The barren woman he made the promise to now needs to enlarge the tent to make more room because God is reversing the curse and he's bringing in blessing to the world as he gathers people from everywhere. In Isaiah 54, God's saying, this is the time that I promised long ago. This is a time to celebrate. This is a time for joy. And as we keep on reading, the cause for celebration continues. Because not only is the family expanding, but it's like mom and dad are back together again. In verse 4, we're told that God and His people are reunited, reconciled and reunited in marriage. So we read from verse 4. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. Why? For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. And the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says the Lord. You see, Israel has been a faithless and adulterous wife. Because of her wickedness, she's experienced fear and shame and disgrace and grief. But God declares to her that those days are gone and they, they will be completely forgotten through the joy and the comfort of her marriage to God. In verse 5, these great titles are stacked on top of each other, driving home the wonder of being united to the God of the universe. Uh, to start with, their husband is their maker the creator of the world. And then we're told that he's Yahweh, the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. He's the one who can protect and to fight for them. And then we're told that God is the Holy One. And the people are unholy. But yet the Holy One has redeemed them. He's chosen them to be his wife. He's made them pure to be united to him. And, through, and though the Lord reigns over all the earth, he is sovereign over everything. He's chosen to unite himself to this people, to this bride in marriage. Do you think you'd feel pretty safe and special and secure if God was your marriage partner? 
Yeah, it's a slightly absurd picture to kind of imagine. Uh, but would you ever fear walking home through a dark alleyway at night if God was with you? <laughs> Not at all. Or can you imagine that the pride or honor that would come from a party as you introduce your spouse? Yeah, this is Yahweh. He's my husband. Yes, he's the creator of the entire universe and he chose me. He's with me. It's kind of a weird picture, but God says that's how I want you as my people to think. I'm committed to you. I'm uniting myself to you. And that is a glorious thing. And now interestingly, when Otis Redding sang about security, he said he wasn't interested in money or fame. He thought security would be found in a relationship. And he was onto something. To know that someone loves you and is committed to you no matter what, that's powerful security. That's deep confidence. And when that person who commits themselves to you knows you better than you know yourself and promises to love you for all eternity, well, then you are powerfully protected and provided for by a wonderful spouse. You see, through our marriage to God, we find the, all that we long for in our cravings for security. But unfortunately, God's people, His bride, haven't been very good at upholding their part of the deal. They've been faithless and disobedient and even adulterous. And so as God spoke through Isaiah the prophet, God's people were under His judgment for their wickedness. God acknowledges the breakdown in relationship, but He assures them that there is a better future. Have a look at verse 7. God says, For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. You see, God is perfectly just, and He does what is required to deal with the rebellion and wickedness of His people but he's also not balanced in how he deals with his people. His desire is to show this overwhelming compassion, this everlasting love to the bride that he has chosen. This is the kind of spouse that you will hopefully aspire to be and would delight to have. It's what we find in God. And so from verse 11, God talks about the home he's making for his wife. God builds a beautiful and a secure place for his people to dwell. And no more affliction, no more instability, and no more uncertainty. God's going to be there with them, providing for them, teaching them. It's going to be safe. It's going to be wonderful. Now, from the tense of the start of the chapter, God says He's building a permanent and a glorious city. Have a look at verse 11. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all your wall of precious stones. See, no expense is being spared. This is beautiful. This is secure. All your children should be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it's not from me, whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. You see, it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? God is for His people. He's gathering a great multitude. He's providing a wonderful city. He's personally united to them as their husband. But do you ever wonder or have a niggling doubt that maybe it won't be so easy to turn things around? 
maybe we've all heard or perhaps even made promises that things will be different this time. And so you're not so sure whether God can truly follow through. I mean, God is a great husband, but his people seem to lack. So what confidence can we have that God's promise will be true, that things will truly be different and glorious? It's a chance to say hi to those around you. Questions on the screen. God says things will be different this time. How can we be sure? Uh, Take 30 seconds to have a chat with those around you. All right, friends, let's come back together. How can we be sure that things will be different this time? Well, for a start, God gives them His Word and He reminds them of His faithfulness. You see, God goes way back to the beginning of almost time itself and talks about the time when He was grieved about the multiplication of evil in His world. And so God brought the fair but devastating judgment of the flood on His creation. And then afterwards, God made a promise that things would be different. From that point on, God gave His oath that He would never again bring a sweeping flood of judgment upon the world. Uh, We can read about it in Genesis chapter 9. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. Uh, (coughs) Sorry, As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And just as God has been faithful to that promise for millennia, God wants us to know that His commitment to His people in this promise is equally certain. Have a look at verse 9 in chapter 54. God says, This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you. I will not rebuke you. You see, there's a precedent. As certain as that promise God made in the past is His promise to never again be angry with His people. But He goes further. He says, My promise to you is more certain than even the stability of the created world. Verse 10, For the mountains may depart, the hills may be removed, but... My steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. It's hard to think how God could say that with any more certainty. My word is sure, just have a look at my promise that I made to Noah. But even more permanent than the world we live in is God's promise to show everlasting love towards His people. That is an incredible assurance. But does it always also raise the question for you, how can this be? If God's going to never be angry with His people, does that mean that His people are going to be perfect? Well, if you're one of God's people here, or if you know someone who calls himself one of God's people, I take it you know that's not true. Sadly, this side of the new creation, God's people are not perfect. And so if that's the case, how can God promise to not be angry with them? Surely if He's just they will continue to deserve His wrath and His anger. So maybe we need to ask, what's changed that means God can make this incredible promise? And I take it the answer is in chapter 53. Now many of you are looking at Isaiah 52 and 53 in Bible study this week. It's one of the greatest servant songs. Uh, We saw last week the servant songs, there are five passages in the second half of the book of Isaiah that introduce us to this figure, the servant of God, who, well, on whom the, the hopes of Israel and the entire world rest 
as he comes to do God's will. To do God's will like the whole nation was supposed to do, but has failed to do. And what does the servant do? Well, in chapter 53, we come to the climax of his work, which is both incredibly glorious and tragic. But at the heart of what he does is he stands as a representative, even a substitute for God's people. Have a look at me with me from uh, chapter 53 and verse 4. Surely the servant, he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Or we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see how much the servant stands as a substitute for God's people? We deserve this wrath. We deserve to be stricken by God, smitten by God, afflicted. We deserve to be crushed, pierced, wounded for our sin and our rebellion. For all our iniquities. For all of our rebellion. And yet, God laid all that we deserve upon the servant. And the outcome is so that we can actually receive his gift of righteousness. Have a look down in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. As we've seen, Jesus is this glorious servant. Jesus took our sin and our guilt and our shame on himself as he suffered and bled and died on the cross. And Jesus is the one who now lives to make intercession for us, declaring us to be righteous, not because of anything in ourselves, but because of our trust in him. He's the one who took God's anger. He's the one who took God's judgment and punishment in our place. All that we've done, all that we ever will do, all that we fail to do in disobedience against God, Jesus has dealt with it all. It's gone. It's finished. It's forgiven. And so it's because of the suffering of this servant that God can declare with absolute certainty that you can celebrate You can rejoice. You can have confidence because God will never again be angry with you. Not because you don't deserve it, because all that you have deserved has already been poured out on Jesus Christ. God's guarantee and assurance is you're forgiven. There will never again be God's wrath towards his people. Jesus bore it all. So that change that has taken place in the past makes God's promise certain. He can declare with boldness his anger has been exhausted for his people on himself through the work of his servant. Do you see the incredible assurance? 
Can you imagine a greater security or confidence? doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you will do. We all will fail. We'll mess up. We'll be ashamed. We won't want to admit it to ourselves or to anyone else. But God already knows. And we don't need to fear God's anger. We can approach Him with absolute confidence that He will just extend compassion and love for us. Because Jesus died to deal with the anger that you deserve. Friends, if you're a child of God, if you trust in Jesus Christ, never fear God's anger towards you. He won't. He can't. His anger has been emptied once and for all. So if you crave security, stop wasting your life in pursuing it in every other place. But turn to God. Find the comfort and the assurance of forgiveness in Jesus. Find the security of lasting peace with the God who made you and commits himself to stand by you for all eternity. And the good news is the invitation to come and to receive what you need is still open. This is what we see as we start chapter 55. God says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. As, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I'll make with you a co- an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. See, God's invitation, even God's command, is to come to Him. And did you see that? To be satisfied. To receive what we strive for, yet struggle to find anywhere else. So where can we get that satisfaction? Where does God say satisfaction is found? Here's a quick chance for a chat. Where does God say satisfaction is found? 30 seconds. Say hi. Hi, friends, let's come together. Where does God say satisfaction is found? Well, contrary to your Instagram feeds, true satisfaction doesn't come through a tasty, well-plated-up meal. Contrary to where you put most of your effort in, satisfaction truly doesn't come through your hard work, either in your study or in your job. In fact, satisfaction is not achieved by us. Ironically, it's both beyond our ability to buy, and yet it's freely offered to us by God. Because satisfaction is ultimately only found through coming to God and enjoying relationship with Him. The relationship is initiated by God's invitation. He speaks, but will we listen? Listening is more than just hearing words. It's about being attentive to them, responding rightly to them, and in this case, expressing relationship through them. It's like at the end of a meal, I tell my kids to clear the table. They've got an opportunity there. They've heard my words. Will they listen and obey? And it'll be a delightful end to the night. Or will they run off and choose disobedience? Similar with God. He's spoken. We've heard His word today. Will you listen? Will you respond to Him? Or will you run off and try and ignore the relationship offer? If you do turn... And receive God's invitation. He promises to do far more than just accept us. He promises to satisfy us. And we get a taste of that satisfaction in good food and hard labor. But ultimately it's only found in knowing God and being known by God. But you might have noticed at the end of verse 3, there's this random cameo of King David. 
What has he got to do with God's promise of love towards his people? Well, perhaps it's that David is an example of one who experienced God's commitment of steadfast love, even when he stuffed up in big ways. But I wonder if it's also a reminder of the covenant that God made with David, as it's mentioned there. God promised to David that one of his descendants would come and be a ruler, not just over God's people for a time, but over God's people for all eternity. And that the people of God was going to extend even beyond the borders of Israel to be the one who ruled over the whole world. Perhaps David's mentioned here in his covenant as a reminder that this invitation to come is being extended for all eternity and for all people. It's an open invite. And that king who had come from David's line is no less than the servant who would suffer to open the doors to make this invitation possible. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the reminder that he is that promised king. And so now he offers this invitation. As you hear these words, will you listen and obey? I'm not sure if you enjoy gazing up at the night sky on a clear and cloudless evening. Uh, Sydney's not really the best place for looking at the stars, but there's a regular wonder in what God has made in the universe out there. Uh, But if you enjoy looking up, you'll probably realize that there are often small windows of opportunity to see something a little different and special. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we experienced the first uh, supermoon of the year. Uh, it was wonderful up in the Northern Hemisphere. We had clouds in most of Australia. We had clouds in Sydney. A supermoon, the moon gets a bit closer to the Earth uh, in its orbit. And a supermoon occurs when the, Earth, the moon's closest to the Earth at the same time as a full moon. It looks pretty impressive. But there was a small one night to see it. And we missed it with the clouds. Or if you got up at 6.18 on Saturday morning, there was a small window of opportunity when you could have looked low in the southern sky and seen the International Space Station pass over. There was two minutes, two minutes to see it, and then it was gone. Uh, Why do I tell you about this? Well, God tells us that there's a particular window of opportunity that we presently find ourselves in. And that is the opportunity to come and seek God, to find God, to find satisfaction in God. So chapter 55 and verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You see, the invitation is open to all. The wicked and the unrighteous are listed. No matter who you are or what you've done, God says, come, seek me, find me. Now the time when God has drawn near to us is the time when we can access him. This is the day. So why would you seek God? Maybe you seek the security that comes from being united to the God who made and sustains the universe. Maybe you desire the satisfaction of being intimately known by the Creator and knowing God who gives life and purpose. Fundamentally, I take it we'll only seek God when we hear His voice and realize our essential need for forgiveness. We deserve His wrath. Coming to Him is the only way we can be forgiven, reconciled, and have life and hope. But if you are wicked and rebellious, what confidence can you have that as you come to God, He will welcome you with open arms rather than squash you as your sins deserve? Thankfully, this passage gives us 100% confidence that if you come to God in repentance, 
he will welcome you with forgiveness. In the same way that God can promise to never be angry with his people, God guarantees he will always show compassion and he will always abundantly pardon or forgive all who come to him. That's what we see in verse 7. And more than just pardon, God offers to bless those who come to him. It's kind of astonishing. Sometimes you might hear that if you come forward, if you confess, there'll be no consequence. There'll be pardon extended to you. But God goes further. He says, if you come and ask for my forgiveness, I guarantee you forgiveness. But I'll also offer you a reward. There's blessing, though we do not deserve it, of love, of forgiveness, of security, of a safe and secure eternal home, even of marriage. That may sound a little bit weird. Yeah, come to me, I'll forgive you and I'll marry you. But God's offering to commit himself to you. He will welcome you with open arms. And the exact same assurance, he can guarantee that he will never be angry with his people because his anger has been poured out on his son. And he can guarantee you pardon and forgiveness no matter what you've done because his anger has been poured out on his son. So friends, no matter who you are, you can know that God will welcome you or your friends or your family with forgiveness if you turn and accept his invitation. You can know that now is a time when God is near But what you can't know is how long that window of opportunity will last. God's promised that one day soon his son will return to judge the living and the dead, to bring in his eternal kingdom. And on that day, it will be too late to ask and seek his forgiveness. So friends, if you've heard God's voice today, turn, listen and receive his invitation. So how can we come to God and find all that we need? Here we got time. Quick last question. How can we come to God and find all that we need? 30 seconds, maybe 25, and we'll wrap up. All right, friends, let's come back together. We'll finish off. How can we come to God? How can we find all that we need? Well, first thing we need to see is that the initiative and the invitation must come from God. No human being could have the audacity to expect God's forgiveness on their own terms. Not unless God first comes up with the crazy idea that no matter who you are or what you've done, you can be forgiven and receive His love. But fortunately, God's thoughts are different to ours. Verse 8, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. That's part of the problem. That's why we deserve His judgment. But He also has this wonderful thought of forgiveness. And as high as the heavens are, and sorry, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God, in His incredible mercy, thought that He would take the initiative to open a way that you and I could come back to Him. Knowing that He will pardon, knowing that He will forgive, knowing that He will bless. And we can be sure of this because we've heard it through God's clear and powerful Word. You see, what comes from heaven is effective to do what God purposes. It's true of His thoughts, it's true of His words, It's even true of the rain and the snow. Have a look at from verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You see, what we need comes from God. The rain, the food, it's His provision. It achieves God's purpose. And that's also true from the words that He speaks. God's word is not just true offering us salvation. It's also the means by which we can receive that. 
as God calls us and we obey, God brings us to have life in Him. So friends, just engaging in a Bible talk, opening the Scriptures, it's not an intellectual activity merely. It's engaging with the God of the universe as we hear Him speak. And He works among us. He does what He's purposed. If you've heard Him speak, will you listen and obey? It's as easy as accepting an invitation in verse 1. Come, listen carefully, listen diligently to His words in verse 2 and 3, and then respond to Him in verse 6. Call out to Him. These are terms that express relationship, listening and obedience. Will you speak and respond to God? Will you say sorry for your rebellion, for ignoring Him, for hurting others? Will you thank God that He sent Jesus to suffer and die in your place, to take the punishment that you deserve? Will you ask the risen Lord Jesus to intercede for you, to declare you righteous as He alone deserves? It's as easy as accepting an invitation, but it's also as radical and hard as turning your entire life upside down. You see, calling upon God in verse 6 is paralleled to forsaking the way the wicked have been living in verse 7. As you turn to God, you abandon your old way of living for yourself and you commit yourself to living for God. How could you not? You're turning from rebellion to obedience, from following your thoughts to listening to His thoughts. It changes everything. It's a new path through life. But it's the path of God's blessing, of security, of satisfaction, of delight in the God who made you. It costs everything. And it changes everything. And it gives you so much more than you could ever give up. This is God's great offer and guarantee. And so friends, if you have come to God through Jesus, then is this not your daily delight and joy? What they look forward to in Isaiah 54 and 55 is our daily experience as we live on this side of the work of the servant through his death and resurrection. And friends, if you haven't experienced this or received this, please talk to God today. Make the most of this window of opportunity that he has opened for us so that you too can know life and joy and security and satisfaction with God. And as you know this, do you notice how the passage starts and ends? In 54 verse 1, we're told to sing. In chapter 55 verse 12, there's singing again. The right response to what God has done is to rejoice in the grand vista of His salvation. And so, as I've reflected on this, some words that have come to mind come from an old hymn, a song dating back to 1847 by the Irishman William Rees. It's a hymn you may be familiar with. Uh, I won't sing it because that may not be edifying, but let's read these words together. Uh, And may these be words that we can continue to remember and reflect on as we rejoice in the goodness of God's salvation. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. When the Prince of Life, our ransom, shed for us His precious blood. Who His love will not remember. Who can cease to sing His praise. He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious side. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Friends, my prayer that this could be the song for all of us as we rejoice in the majesty of what God has done for us. Let us pray together. Our Lord and God, we praise you 
for the salvation that you have won for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he stood in our place. He took your wrath that we deserve so that we can experience your compassion, your never-ending love, and have the assurance that you will never look upon us with anger again. Father, may we forsake our ways of wickedness and turn to embrace you, to receive the security of your commitment as our husband, to receive the satisfaction of knowing you and being known by you. Father, thank you for these incredible gifts. May we daily delight in them. May we all hear your voice and listen to you and live with you as our Lord. Father, we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out on Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.